This morning our passage will come from 1 Corinthians, and we will focus on the greeting. So it's a snail's pace of jumping into a new letter of the Bible. I promise to pick up a little bit later, especially over the parts I don't understand. We'll just blaze right through those parts of the book. We will be looking at the greeting this morning. As you know, Paul wrote letters, and part of his writing letters is he followed the norms of his culture, which were to have greetings. But what's amazing is, I think amazing, is he redeems the greeting. You know, it's typical for us to say, dear, so-and-so. But Paul really redeems that. And what he's doing in this just short three-verse greeting, of for verse 1 we looked at last week, and, uh, as well as Acts 18. But what he's doing is he's really highlighting several of the issues he's going to dive into in this letter. And so, um, last week we talked about, I'm going to use the cheesy terminology because I love the cheesy, Jesus is keeping the wheel, okay? This week he's driving a school bus. We're the church. We're on this bus with him, so we're not alone anymore. Okay, that's really dumb. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, we'll look at these first three verses. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I give you praise for calling us to study your word and for providing understanding, but most importantly, for calling us to be your church. Um, I don't think we understand it. I know I don't and you think I would, and so I pray, Lord, that you would help all of us better grasp what it means to be part of your church and your kingdom this morning. In your name we pray, amen. In 1998, there were two movies released at about the same time, which made it somewhat awkward, Ants and A Bug's Life. A Bug's Life one. I mean, right, that's the, that's the VHS over the beta. Doug likes Ants better. Okay, so, okay, that's fine. Um, but A Bug's Life is better. It's a much better movie. Anyway, we'll have that debate later. I'm sure that'll be the next film night, Shane, so you can show up for that. They both, though, have some commonalities in that obviously ants work together and they get a ton of things done, but maybe they don't get the right things done. And, and so there's this hero that has to emerge, at least in The Bug's Life, and, and, and he's so inventive he doesn't fit in, and so he, he's kicked out, right? And I don't know if that's the one I'm honing in on, A Bug's Life, because honestly, I can't remember ants. Um, but in a bug's life, uh, there's these grasshoppers that are like making the ants serve them. And so this one guy, the bug, the ant, has these ideas and gets this circus group together. And uh, anyway, I'm really butchering this. And they, they come back with this idea of this, they're going to build this bird, and they're going to all work together to save the colony from the grasshoppers. Okay, that's all I've got. All right, It doesn't work, but then it kind of works. And, the, and in the end, everyone's happy and the ants work together. But here's the point, right? We are always on one point of those con continuums with the church. Like, we, we want to be part of this group, but sometimes we go, what's the point? And so some of us have a bright idea. I'll just forge out on my own and start my own thing, and that doesn't work either. Somehow, the church has to bring together our individualistic walks with Christ, our own qualities, right, but with the community. And we know, like, ants don't get anything done unless they're working together, the church itself is useless unless it's working in unison 
for God's purposes. The problem is with Corinth, and really with us, is we are really, it's in our DNA, and I'm going to, we'll explain that as we go this morning, to try to be individualistic, to try to do it on our own. But unless the church is working together, we won't do God's purposes. So that's the thing we're going to look at this morning. God carries out His purposes through His church. And that may sound, if that just rubs you wrong, then you're in the right place. Because I think we all need to hear that. God carries out His purposes through His church. Okay, so we're going to start with what is the church. By the way, the title is Why Does It Matter? And that's what we want to unpack a little bit this morning. And as I've already said, a lot of these topics will come up again in the letter. So if I can just hit on a few things, I hope it will help understand the the importance for Paul. So what is the church? Um, We see right here in verse 2, Paul says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. The word there, and you know they teach you in preaching class, don't bring up the Greek. No one wants to hear the Greek. And especially because I didn't pronounce it right until Doug helped me. But uh, it's ecclesia, right? So you hear ecclesiology, church. Ecclesia is the body. But the problem is for the Corinthians, they wouldn't have heard church. If you study Greek and you read ecclesia, you think, oh, that means church. For them, they would have heard this. Ecclesia is a body of political purposes. It's a group coming together to accomplish important political things. And that's, imp- that's really interesting because for those that are in Corinth, they weren't really welcomed into that world of the, Ro- of the Roman world, that part of the Roman world. So just to remind you of what's going on in Corinth. Um, Paul writes this around 50 BC or AD. Corinth, this Corinth was founded in like 45 BC. So it's 100 years old. It's a very young colony. It was destroyed in 150. It went about 100 years with nothing. And then Julius Caesar founds it in 45 B.C. And so when Paul comes, it's been around 100 years. And not only was it pretty new, but it was made up of people who were there to seek their riches. It's like a boom town. They're there to to make their own way. None of them had anything with them when they came necessarily. They weren't part of famous families or political heritage. So they came to make their way. And Corinth was situated, and I mentioned this last week, so I'm going to bore some of you, uh, at, at, at an isthmus in Greece that was basically the waterway, the neck, between the top portion of Greece attached to Europe and the southern Peloponnese Islands. It was the passageway from the east to the west. So that was, when Julius Caesar said, let's refound, or find, how do you say that? How, let's reestablish this colony. That was like a perfect opportunity to go in and get involved in manufacturing or anything and make wealth. And that's what happened. But the problem, as we see in America with this, too, is I think what happens is it's hard to know who's in charge. right? And so this church is now founded in the 50s, and Paul leaves after 18 months, and they start having factions and issues. If you look at verse 10, where we'll get to in a few weeks, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you. What were these divisions? We'll, we'll study them later, but they're basically arguing over who they followed. And all these house churches are popping up, and, and there's tension. And so even in this introduction, Paul says something that I think is profound. To the church, singular. To this political body, but not of politics, not of Rome, which none of them would have been invited to anyway, but of God. So Paul is saying you are connected 
together as a church, and you are a church of God. But he goes on, not only to the church of God that is in Corinth, but to those that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. I mean, that's, the Protestant church, this may be new for you. Every one of you that's a Christian is already a saint. How many of you have your candles? Like, that would be awesome. I think that would be a great industry. Like Everybody that's a Christian gets their own candle. Anyway, everybody that's a Protestant is a saint. And that's new for many of us. Because most of us think of the saint as being the special, amazing ones. But actually, in Christ, you are all saints. And not only you, but Paul says, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church is the local body of Christ, but connected to the national body of Christ, right? But it goes on beyond beyond that. It's also connecting us to not just geography, but through chronology, right? So where did the church begin? If I were to ask you, where did the church begin? Here's the Reformed answer. Not Acts 2, the Reformed answer, and some of you may disagree. Genesis 3, in the garden. Satan shows up, Adam and Eve fall, and God comes into the garden and explains to Satan that there will be one that will crush his head. And that promise is carried on to Abraham, that he will have a seed that blesses the nations. And it carries on all through the Old Testament. And the point is, there's this story that goes all the way into the prophets where they begin to talk about a Messiah, a Christ, and they're longing for that. And here we have Paul explaining Christ Jesus, our Lord, is who called you to be a saint. And so the church is the body of Christ, both right here in this room, across the city, like all the churches you're driving by to come here, that are in Christ, they're connected, but across this world, right? And also across time and space. So it's a pretty big thing, right? And that's what the church is. And that's who God uses to carry on his accomplishments. So the question is, what makes us unique? Why are we together? What makes a group like each other? And the answer is our the common purpose. If you have a common purpose, you can have, and I'll read the quote, um, from the front, you can have enemies joined together. Shane already read it, but um, from the front, D.A. Carson says, ideally, the church is not made up of natural friends, but of natural enemies. Why would it say that? Why would he say ideally? Not because we're trying to go out and find our enemies and be kind of cool, but rather because if all you do is hang out with people that are like you, you're probably not stretching yourself, right? And so when you're in Christ, if Jesus has saved you and He is now your Savior, you're probably going to find yourself having people that look from the world's perspective very different from you, wanting to be together to worship and to hang out. Okay, so here's a really bad illustration of this. And I like to say that on the front end because then you go, oh, come on, Ryan, this would be okay. So and I, <clears throat> I feel a little awkward because some friends are in the back, but I've been doing CrossFit now for a year. I say that because you can't tell. <laughs> and that's okay. And as a pastor, the worst thing a pastor can do is start talking about CrossFit. Shane, have you done it yet at RUF? Exactly. <laughs> and so I've just been carefully not doing it. But I'm going to share with you this story, uh, and it's going to embarrass some folks maybe. But um, So I was in Colorado working out. Colorado has a ton of CrossFit going on. And I remember seeing the, the folks running around their, their box. 
But I'm over here in this gym just kind of getting ready for CrossFit. Like I'm going to do my workouts. I'm going to get stronger and healthier. And one day, someday, I'm going to go. Well, then we moved to Oklahoma. I go to, I'm in Edmond for two years, so I'm working out. Who knows what I do there? So we come here to Stillwater. And I, once again, I'm at gym one. I'm going to get ready for CrossFit. And one day, I decide I'm just going to drive over and just kind of see if they're open. And I walk in. And I totally expect to walk in and have this kind of attitude, like, um, yeah, you know, we can take you if you want. We don't really need you. You know what I mean? Like, kind of like, we're kind of got our thing going on, so if you want to come in, that's fine if you want to. Well, I walk in. I really didn't know you guys were going to be back there, so it's Rhonda. Rhonda Tower. She's like, hey, and we're talking. She's like, so you're going to start tomorrow. Mark's, my husband's going to train you. And, I mean, and we had this conversation. But I felt totally like, yes, I needed someone to just tell me to come in, and, and you're starting. And because obviously I wanted to, I came in the door. That's the perfect sales. It's called assuming the sale. Perfect. So here I am. At, I mean, I've already got it set up. And I'll never forget those early workouts. I was, I'm still the worst. But then I didn't know I would be. <laughs> but we're doing these workouts, and no matter how bad it goes, we're all laying on the floor. Like, we're all exhausted. Some of us have had better times than others. Right? I had some of the worst times. I still do. But I'm exhausted. I'm laying on the floor. Thomas, he's doing his next workout. I'm still on the ground. <laughs> Here's the point. That is a pic- Here, why is that illustration so good for me? Because CrossFit people are weird. When I went to General Assembly, and Shane, did, you were there. Yeah, we were, of course. We found other PCA pastors in Mobile, and we did CrossFit together. And that was, like, really cool. Why? Because we have something we share in common. Now, it's just a workout. It's just a workout. I'm not trying to say this is like the church. Um, but there is an amazing community because we center on something we all share, we all love. And so different looking people, different behaving people, different jobs can come together and share this thing because it, it means something to all of us. And I would say, if you know, as Paul says, for as important as physical training is or as helpful, how much more is godliness and spiritual training and so the gospel brings together the church. And we all come from all walks of life. If we all talked about our jobs and where we were in life and what our ambitions were. We're all over the spectrum. But we come here, and what do we do? Hopefully, after our confession of sin, we're laying on the ground exhausted. Right? It's overwhelming. We're all sinners. You heard Shane say that. He confessed fuming for three hours yesterday. How many pastors stand up and do that? I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> I'll be like, you know, it's a little myth. Shane was honest. We were authentic. We're real. We all need Jesus. That is the common denominator. So the church is made up of people who can come to this place of emptying themselves of their own glory, which the Corinthians were needing help with, and take on the fact that they needed Jesus. And he was their common denominator. Where is that in this text? This is going to move us to how do we, or, or we're talking about what is the church? It's the body of Christ, but what do we do? If we, if we come to Christ in confession, if we come to Christ needing everything, what, what is it that the church does together? And the answer, look at verse 3. Grace, this is going to be, it's going to be like, how did he get this from here? That's okay. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The church spreads peace. The church is a peacemaker. When the church comes together and we understand that we need Jesus, point one, and we're a body, then, then point two is we can actually spread peace. 
Now, in the, in the Greek, that's irene, but in the, in, the, in the Hebrew, it's shalom. Most of you have heard that word. And we miss, I understand the word shalom, especially after the 60s. You know, peace, man, you know, it's just basically get, get along, quit being angry about anything. Uh, maybe at best you would say, okay, peace means to stop fighting, right? Like a ceasefire, maybe in a war. But in, in the Old Testament, shalom had such a deep meaning. And the Hebrew ear would read that from Paul and grasp what he's getting at. Peace means eternal flourishing. It means seeing things work the way they were supposed to. So in our home, if two of our children are fighting, we don't just want them to stop. That would be great. We want them to actually love each other. Right, parents? I mean, you're like, why do my kids like not love each other and, and care for each other's best interests? When a disease shows up, you don't just want it to be removed. You want the person to actually healed and flourish, right? We, want, we, not, we don't just want things to get slightly better. We want them to actually work the way they were meant to. If there's an oil spill, you don't just want the oil removed. You want the, the, you want the animal life back. You want the water clear. You want the plant life to grow. You want flourishing. And that is what the church's job is. Our job is we are God's representative on this earth to bring peace. Now, I could spend, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on that. How does that look? But my bigger question for this morning is, is that even on your radar? Like, when you think, I'm going to go to Grace this morning, do you see that as being part of your role? So how are we bringing peace? How is this church doing it collectively? How are each of you doing it in your own lives? Um, I was going to ask this earlier and totally forgot, but um, that's how I work. I just want to, I would love to go, I don't do this, so for those of you that are new, I'm not actually asking this question to be answered. It's sort of a rhetorical question. But what do you think of when you think of the word church? Right? If I started naming churches in town, you would probably picture the buildings, right? Well, I drive by that one, I drive by that one. If I named one you've been into, you would then, well, I've been in there. You'd imagine the insides of that church, right? And then if I said, how about grace? Now that you've come here, if you've been here at all, you might picture this environment and this gymnasium and these amazing jump rope signs. Um, chin-up bars are gone, but they used to be there, and kids would do chin-ups. Is that the church? Like, what is the church? Right? Is the goal just coming in here and setting up chairs and sitting and, and getting through what's going to seem like a long morning? Everyone's like already looking at the clock. Is that what we do? And the answer is no. Paul says to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. The church is you and me individually. right? Where it's the individuals. Where it's the collective. That's, it's a mystery. And it's also the individuals, but it's not the chairs. It's not the building. right? It's not the worship service. Though those are all part of it. It's us. And the Spirit of God dwells with us in a unique way on Sunday mornings when we have this service. But by goodness, when we go out from here, I hope you understand the church is still you. Grace didn't stay here. In fact, ask my kids. Where do they go to school? They can't figure it out because they go to Westwood. Like, well, I go to a church at school. They don't know which is the difference. For most of us, we don't do that. So when you leave here, you're going out to do what? Bring peace to the world. One of the things the Reformation did, it, it, it changed back to the way the Bible teaches that instead of having priests out there, these high and lofty people that we couldn't understand their language, who are the priests in the Reformation idea? 
Am I the priest? You're the priests. I think every one of you should have a white collar. And go out, because when you go out into the world, you might as well wear your white collar, because you are the priest. On an airplane, someone starts to tell you their problem, you're their priest. You're, it's your opportunity to listen, to care for them. And at work, and in everything you do, you're a priest of Christ. You equally are. So, that's our job. Now, how do we do it? Um, very simply, here's a long list. How do you go out and act with peace to people? How do you bring the peace of Christ to people? And the answer is the first word in verse 3, grace. It's an important word. That's why we named the church grace. I wasn't here when that happened, but I approve mightily of the name. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you this question. I want you, how many of you know what a highlight magazine is? Okay, so you've been to the doctor's office in the last decade? The highlight magazine, those that don't know, are children's magazines. They have those, those drawings, and those drawings that you're supposed to find objects inside them. Okay? This is like a highlight magazine, and here's what you're supposed to find. How many times does Paul say Christ Jesus in the first three verses? So I'm going to read it to you, and just follow along, and let it just jump out at you. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, number one, and our brother Sosthenes, verse two, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, second time, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, third time in two verses, both their Lord and ours. Verse three, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. I was talking with Doug about it. I'm going to always reference him. It's like it's bad writing. And here's what he means. It's beautiful writing. It's sanctified writing. But if you and I did it, it would be bad writing because you're supposed to use pronouns. But when Paul does it, he does it with a purpose. Which Doug agrees. So we're on the same page. The point is Paul's saying Jesus Christ is the, is the head of the church. Our Lord Christ Jesus, the Messiah. That's the head of the church. And listen to what he says in verse 2. To those, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? So the word sanctified there is to be set apart. And that was their word used, especially in Jewish worship, when they took certain dishes and different utensils and set them apart for this use in worship, right, in the temple. And they would cleanse them. They would wash them and they would set them apart. And they were special. And what he is saying is, we have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. But how have we been sanctified in Christ Jesus? So Jesus died for our sins. Right? We say that all the time. What that means is that we have entered into a new reality, if we are a Christian, set apart from who we once were. But not because of anything we've done. Those utensils did nothing. A person had to do it. God has called you. And God has set you aside. And you are cleansed by the blood of Christ. And so when Paul says in chapter in verse 3, grace, what he is saying is there's nothing in you that makes you deserve to be set apart. Later, in, in chapter 1, he goes on to say, many, none of you are, are wise or noble. In fact, it's the confession we're doing every week. Um, not many of you are even special by any stretch of the imagination. So cheer up. None of you are special. They should put that in elementary schools. Have a great day. You all are below average. That's true. 
of all of us. And I hate to say that, not because you're not good people, not because you don't, aren't friendly or great in your jobs, but because in the, in, the, in the annals of time and space, you and I are sinful and we need a Savior. And you believe that and you confess it, but you don't live like that. We wake up every morning as if somehow the earth is going, yay, He woke up and I'm ready for Him to do His thing. Right? Or maybe we wake up depressed because we don't feel right. And those are both what I'd call natural feelings. But what the Spirit calls us to do is to wake up and go, Jesus, thanks be to God that You have set me apart, that You have saved me, that You've placed Your Holy Spirit in me, that I'm a new creation. And that today I'm Your priest. And I'm going to act as Your priest in my family, in my dorm room, at work, in my online chat room, millennials, I don't know. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share the love of Christ wherever I go. Because that is how I've been refreshed and renewed. Is that your view of church? Is that your hope? I want you to hear what Peter, I've lost the place in this book. Where is it? Even though it's in the Bible. I was going to read it from... Uh... And by the way, this is a great book by Edmund Clowney on the church. Um... I highly recommend it. Contours of Christian Theology. And in it, he describes the story of how God is rescuing His people through the church. And I can't find the verse. There it is. And he says this, It is the greatest story ever told. The story of God's saving love. That story does not begin in Bethlehem's major, as I've already said. It begins in the Garden of Eden. And it continues through to the... um, to the Pharisees, to the prophets, prophesying and renewing God's claim on them and to predict both the restoration and the renewal of Israel. And then Jesus Christ comes, not only as the promised Messiah, the anointed son of David, but also as Emmanuel, God with us. According to the Bible, the church is the people of God, the assembly and the body of Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And he makes the point, when you read the Bible, and I'm just going to reiterate this point, we, we make the mistake of reading it as if there are little buckets of truths that we can take into our day rather than the unfolding story of redemption of which you have been called into. And then listen to what Peter says in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Okay. Do you like that message? Right? Do you like that message? So, if you ever... I'm going to bring up CrossFit one last time. If you ever sit down with two people that did CrossFit, you're going to hate life. Because the third person is going to go, what are they talking about, right? Like, we'll sit down, Doug's there going, I don't do CrossFit, and two of, Brian and I are talking about it. The point is, if you don't like something, you don't want to even hear about it or talk about it, right? It almost annoys you, okay? I'm afraid that you guys are getting really good at hearing sermons that annoy you. Thank you, by the way. But you're not, are they gripping your heart? Is Jesus gripping your heart? And the only way that will ever happen is if you really believe you are in desperate need of a Savior. 
do you think you've got it mostly together? Do you think you could kind of skip this time of the morning and be pretty much okay? Do you think that if without the message of the cross, your life would look pretty much the same? If I'm honest, I'll confess, yeah. Let's be honest. Most of the time, yes. Most of the time, if someone interrupts you in the middle of the day and says, Jesus died for you, you're going to go, great, I've got something I'm doing. Just hold that thought. It doesn't impact you. Right? Why is that? Because we're caught up in our success, in our emotions, in our relationships, and all the things that we're plugging into, and we don't have any sense of our desperate need of our Savior and our very real connection to Him. So what do we do? I think a great beginning place is to take off your masks. Here at church, for example, or when you get together, and be honest with your struggle, your doubts. Do you do that with each other? Do you confess your sins? Do we do that outside of this one moment? And this is a, We do our confession of sin here to spur you on in your daily lives to confess your sins to the Lord and to one another. To be honest with your need for Christ. Okay, if that happens... If we begin to do that, I think what will happen in this community is we'll actually want to be together. Right? One of my biggest hopes is that when we're older, my wife and I, our kids will actually want to be with us. Older parents, I'm not going to look at any faces because I don't want anyone to think I'm talking to them. You want your adult children to want to be with you, right? I want Grace Church to be the kind of place where you want to not only come on Sunday mornings, you all want to hang out throughout the week. You want to join the small groups. You want to know each other. Not so that you can go around saying, look how involved I am. But rather, like Liz's testimony, you can say, I was known. I've been loved here. I've been able to share and love others. This is the community of Christ. If we're not that for you, by the way, please talk to me. If, if I'm making mistakes or if you feel like there's some kind of a hindrance, we, I would love to have that conversation. But usually... I think it's a matter of us just being willing to take off our masks and say we need each other in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I don't know what it is that makes it so desirous to act a part, to come play a role, to, to try to figure out the system and then skate through life. Please do not let us be that kind of community. Lord, your church is across the entire world and it spans from, the, from Genesis to now and it's marching forward. And we are a small part of that here at Grace, but I pray we would be powerful. Powerful, Lord, because we want to actually believe and rest on your gospel. That we are sinners in need of a Savior and we are now free to worship you, to call on you as Lord Jesus, to love you, to have affection towards you, and to have affection toward one another, and to die to our idols, and to die to all the things that take our eyes off you. Holy Spirit, will you make this work in our lives for your glory. Amen.